BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, May 29th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, inquiringshow.tumblr.com, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Privlo. Can't get a mortgage because you're self-employed, make an uneven income, or have an old credit blemish? Well, there's a new lender in town, and they built a business to help you. Privlo knows that your finances are as unique as your fingerprints, and unlike regular lenders, they take a holistic view of your entire financial picture to see if you qualify for a mortgage. Apply online at privlo.com podcast and fill out a simple online form. You'll have a decision in hours. That's privlo.com podcast. So one of the things I love about hosting Inquiring Minds is that I get sent all kinds of awesome science books to consider. Now, of course, not all of them make it onto the show, but once in a while, someone sends me a book by an author I've never heard of, and it turns out to be really eye-opening. This week's guest is just such an author. His name is Alan Levinovitz, and his book, The Gluten Lie and Other Myths About What You Eat, is entertaining, informative, and even feels very modern. And that's because the last third of the book is actually a fad diet itself, totally deconstructed. It's kind of awesome. So if you've ever rolled your eyes at a dinner party because someone is telling you all about the latest awesome craze that they and then they're giving all these great points about why you should change your dietary habits to match theirs, you're finding it all a bit hard to believe, but also a bit hard to argue with. That's when you whip out Alan's book. Because in it, he discusses the science behind four major topics in eating research, gluten, salt, sugar, and fat, pretty much my favorite things. He gets deep into what we know, and of course, more importantly, what we still don't know, and how the media often conflates the two, but he also gives you a how-to guide to spot the myths in diet crazes, which I think is really awesome. But I think what it makes this book even more special is that it wasn't written by an eating researcher. He's not even a scientist. He's a professor of religion at James Madison University. And after reading his book, I actually think that someone who studies the history of myths is uniquely qualified to write about diet fads. That seems so bizarre. He doesn't have a background in science, and he's talking about how the science can be misrepresented about all these things. Did you buy into it without the credibility? 
Well, he's certainly done a lot of homework. So he's interviewed a lot of people that are important in the field. He's read, obviously, a ton of papers. And, you know, he he's become, I think, a really good science journalist in the process. This is a topic that's really fascinated him. And I think that his fascination comes from the fact that some of these food myths are very similar to the types of myths that he's studied in his own field. This is a pretty bold statement, the gluten lie. I know so many people that have cut gluten out and claim that how much better they feel about themselves. Is it a lie even if the science doesn't back it up? Well, that's what we'll find out in the interview. But before we get there, I actually wanted to read to you the very first quote in the book. Instead of giving you a clip from the interview, you can hear it now. I'm going to crack open the physical substance of the book and read to you the very first quote. And uh, I guess we should warn people that this contains some explicit language. If you stopped eating gluten, you'd feel way fucking better all day. Whenever you feel shitty, that's because of gluten. It's just true. Gluten's a vague term. It's something used to categorize things that are bad. You know, calories. That's a gluten. Fat. That's a gluten. That's Seth Rogen. (laughs) Oh, one of the great food scholars of our time. (laughs) The book just gets better from there. So that'll be our interview for today. Before we get there... What's on your mind this week? I think there's one story that harkens back to a recent interview. You may recall we had Ivan Aransky on to talk about his site Retraction Watch and the nature of retractions in science. And this week might have been the biggest retraction ever in science. There was a study that came out last year to a lot of acclaim uh, regarding how you can change views, uh, people's views on gay marriage. And uh, the study seemed to indicate that you can do this in face-to-face conversations. They sent out people to canvas, and they would go talk door-to-door. And in these kinds of face-to-face conversations, people's views on gay marriage were adjusted in a statistically significant way. And this got widespread coverage. It was everywhere, even made it on This American Life. And I remember, because in the This American Life episode, you hear Ira Glass say, this result is almost unbelievable. And that's why they did the study twice. And here we are just about a little more than a year later. uh, One of the co-authors of the paper was alerted to uh, a reproducible reproducibility study that two graduate students at UC Berkeley tried to conduct on this paper and they couldn't replicate the findings and they started to find some irregularities. So he wrote to the journal science and on Thursday, May 28th, science officially retracted the paper because there were so many irregularities in it. Yeah, I mean, I think what's amazing about this story is just how much press it's getting. You know, the story seems to be fairly simple. You know, a person, for whatever reason, just maybe or maybe not, I guess we shouldn't, we don't know exactly. We're waiting for a personal statement that's supposed to arrive today uh, from the graduate student who was uh, was one of the, the co-authors that is accused now of, um, of essentially not collecting the data that he said that he collected or reported that he collected. Um, but the fact that, you know, people are really talking about this a lot, and I guess maybe I'm just cynical, but I feel as though, you know, it's it's gotten way more press than, you know, people, than it, than it maybe deserves. I don't know about that. I I mean, part of it is that uh, Ira Glass wrote uh, an apology on his site and explained the situation and actually crashed uh, crashed the Retraction Watch site, which broke the story because so many people clicked on it. Uh, And what I loved about his um, apology is that he uh, 
and I loved about the coverage so far, it hasn't really thrown science under the bus. I haven't heard in a lot of the wide coverage about how science is broken. Look at this retraction. A lot of the coverage has been like, these two people found this error, uh, you know, alleged error, and uh, have uncovered this through sleuthing, and we were fooled. And there's a mea culpa coming from a lot of journalistic outlets in a way that I think um, is great. And it's afforded the opportunity for people like Ivan, Adam Marcus at Retraction Watch to go out and say, hey, this isn't all bad news. This is actually a sign of health that we can uncover this stuff. Well, there's also another story that's similar to this that's making the rounds, which is about a study that purportedly showed that if you eat a chocolate bar in addition to a low-carb diet, that you're going to lose more weight. Have you heard about this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So this, in some ways, is not somebody actually purposefully f- frauding or you know defrauding the data, but it was actually written by a science journalist. The entire study was was conducted by a science journalist intent to prove that the media misrepresents science all the time and that they can pick up on they that they can't tell, you know, when when there's good science and when there's bad science. So essentially what this science journalist did, who, you know, he has a PhD, it's just not just doesn't happen to be in eating research. Um, but he actually went out and conducted this quote unquote clinical trial and he essentially had so many variables and such a small sample size that he was almost, you know, guaranteed to find a false positive effect. And that's what he reported. And he submitted it to a journal that is a pay pay to publish uh, journal. And within two weeks, it was already published. Then he alerted the press about this paper. And he, you know, it was on the front page of a number of major newspapers across the world. And so now he's sort of come clean and shown how easy it is to essentially fool the media. This is going to be a tough episode for my waistline. We're talking about how I can eat as much gluten as I want, and now uh, the chocolate study is also not entirely true. I know. Surprising, right? Eating a chocolate bar a day does not actually accelerate your weight loss. Um, so, well, let's let's shift away from food for a minute and talk about something almost equally unbelievable. So one of the things that uh, caught my eye this week, uh, which is totally not related to food, although I guess kind of ultimately it is when we get to it... <laughs> Uh, is the name of a new wasp. So uh, apparently there's a wasp that sucks the soul out of cockroaches. It's called the Ampulex Dementor. And you might think, well, how did this wasp get its name, especially given the you know Harry Potter reference? Well, it turns out that in 2012, Berlin museums organized these long night of the museums. So essentially, um, throughout the entire city, people went out to the museums. And in one of the museums, there was a video that was played of this colorful, undescribed species of cockroach wasp. Um, so the genus is Ampulex from Thailand. And the video told the, uh, the, the visitors that, in fact, um, this was an unnamed uh, wasp and they were looking for a name to it and they handed out a ballot um, with a couple of uh, you know bits of information about the wasp and they actually had people submit and then vote on names i think dementor is a perfect name i wonder if the cockroach has to cast a patronus charm to scare them off <laughs> would that even work i don't know I guess that it depends if cockroaches have wands. What what's amazing about this is the cockroaches are so much bigger than the wasp. Like, I know. Why? Why? I know. Why? <laughs> why? So let me tell you how it works. Essentially, what the wasp does is it injects a venom into the cockroach's stomach, which makes it unable to initiate movements. So the cockroach is still alive. It's still probably thinking, but essentially, and it can still kind of 
I guess, move. It can be it can be dragged, I guess, by the wasp, but it can't initiate movements itself. Oh, my goodness. So it's completely paralyzed and operated by the wasp. Does it offer them like a uh, like a predator prey type advantage? They have like the 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 size of the cockroach wasp conjoined <laughs> element like sort of scares off any other predators of the wasp or is uh, this merely for food i think it's merely i mean i don't know it's a it's a good question but i from my understanding of the the paper it's just a food thing it's the way that the wasp can you know get the cockroach into a safe place where then it can eat it because of course the cockroach is bigger than the wasp and so it's going to take it some time to to eat it it can't it doesn't want to be out in the open so what it can do is you know essentially create a zombie out of the cockroach and then drag it into its lair they always say that cockroaches are going to outlive us all on this planet now zombie cockroaches are the thing that's going to outlive us all on this planet yeah that's going to help me sleep at night (laughs) (laughs) so with that uh let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with alan levinovitz Did you know you can refinance your student loans, save thousands, and make the whole process incredibly easy to manage? Our sponsor this week, Ernest, has created the first radically flexible refinancing experience that can save you thousands on your student loans and put you back in control of your payment terms. Their product helps customers save an average of more than $12,500, with rates starting as low as 1.9% APR. Ernest never charges any fees, that means no penalties for paying off your loan quickly, and no charges for origination or changing your terms down the line. You can set your own terms, change your payment amount and date, and even skip a payment, all with just a few clicks at meetearnest.com. Ernest can do this because they're a new kind of lender, one that looks at things traditional banks don't, like your potential, to give you the lowest possible rates. Ernest will never pass you off to a third party, their on-site team is your customer service partner for the life of your loan. It takes less than two minutes to find out how much you can save, and they have a special offer for our listeners. You get $150 cash back when you refinance through meetearnest.com slash minds. So don't get stuck paying more than you have to. Check out meetearnest.com slash minds to take control and quickly see your personalized rates today. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Alan Liminovitz. Thank you so much for having me. So we're going to talk on the show about food myths, but you're a religious scholar. So how does a religious scholar write a book about food myths? That's a really great question. I get asked that a lot. And one of the first things I do is I I tell people about my specialty, which is Chinese religion. And I I tell a story about these Taoist monks that were around about 2000 years ago, and they were anti-grain. They thought that if you avoided the five grains, which were staple foods in China, not necessarily gluten-containing grains, but five grains, if you avoided these, you would live forever, you'd clear up your skin, you would be free from disease, you would fly and teleport. And what was interesting was not just the, the promises that they made about dietary miracles, but they also recommended supplements. So they would say, you know, if you add milk thistle and mercury to your no-grain diet, that's what will really help you eradicate disease and live even longer than anyone else. And I saw these I saw these Taoist monks making pretty much the exact same kinds of promises that modern diet gurus made. And I said, well, maybe if I can take my own area of expertise, which is the analysis of religious rhetoric, and look at modern day claims about food through that lens, I, I might come to understand why we believe what we do about food and why people are so dogmatic about their diets. And and I found I was right. 
So I want to get right into that. So what can you tell us a little bit about the evolution of food myths? I mean, you know, you mentioned the Taoist months, and, it's, and it sounds very similar. Has there been an evolution? Or have these myths just sort of come about again and again and again in, in pretty much the same form? So what I found was that there were certain archetypal myths and superstitions that recurred again and again. One of them, to, to go back to these Taoist monks, is, is what I call the myth of paradise past. So these monks, even 2,000 years ago, you'd think they would be happy because we like to romanticize the time in the past when people like those Taoist monks lived healthfully and free from processed foods. But actually, those monks were equally frustrated with their own time, and they talked about a time long ago when everyone was happy and healthy because they didn't eat any of the evil five grains. And I saw this myth of paradise past again and again and again, right? And it recapitulates the Adam and Eve myth, which is about a garden where everyone was happy and healthy and immortal and free from disease. And then they ate the wrong food and boom, they fell from grace. So it's a, a cross-cultural myth, this idea of food being the way in which we polluted ourselves and fell from grace. The, the thing that happens, though, over time is that people wrap this myth in science of the day. And since science is changing, you get the Taoist monks using five phases theory to justify their diets, while as you get modern diet gurus talking about the gut microbiome, right? So whatever time period it is, you get the science of the day superimposed on timeless myths and superstitions. I mean, it sounds like you've just summed up every fad diet I've ever heard of in two features. So I want to first just kind of ask you about, you know, this might be what sells the diet, right? Uh, in, in Especially in, in how you talk about this as being almost like religious rhetoric. Um, but if this is just the salesmanship, is there something specific about the diets themselves that has changed? Or, you know, do you just see them packaged in different formats? Well, I think it's important to point out that part of the selling point of these diets is that there's always a grain of truth at the center. So let's take going gluten-free, for example. There's no question, of course, that people who suffer from celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disease, need to eat gluten-free or else they will suffer very serious consequences. And it is also possibly true, according to the experts that I've talked with, that some people are are non-celiac gluten sensitive. In other words, a small percentage of the population feels better when they eliminate gluten from their diets. And the problem is that this small percentage of the population gets generalized. So people take the benefits of the gluten-free diet for the few and they extrapolate it to the many. And they say, not only will this be good for people with celiac or people with irritable bowel syndrome or people with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, it'll be good for everyone. And it won't just help with your digestion. It will also help you avoid Alzheimer's and help you avoid cancer and help you avoid whatever the diseases of the day are that people are particularly scared of. So I think part of the appeal of these diets is they get some evangelists, if you will, for whom the diet very genuinely saved their lives. And that's that's very compelling when you hear people like that testify to the efficacy of the diet. So I do want to get back to this you know, notion of of the the anecdotal evidence that is incredibly you know incredibly compelling. But I want to delve more deeply into the gluten diet as well. So you know, in your book, you talk about the celiac disease, and and so for our listeners who are not familiar with celiac disease, can you just give us a quick idea of what it is and essentially how many people in the U.S. are thought to suffer from it? 
Sure. So it's first of all, it's incredibly underdiagnosed. So most experts think that around one in a hundred, a touch less, maybe I've seen numbers like one in 113 people, but let's say one in a hundred people have celiac disease, which is which is an autoimmune disease that causes people's bodies to react to gluten. However, it's important to point out that you're predisposed to having celiac disease and no one actually understands how that genetic predisposition becomes full-blown celiac disease. So some people think it's exposure to gluten. Some people think it's environmental. We're not sure. Whatever the trigger, once you have celiac disease, your body mounts an autoimmune response to the protein complex known as gluten. So gluten is a protein complex. It's what gives spongy the sponginess to bread. Uh, that's why gluten-free bread so often crumbles and falls apart. And so gluten is is, is something that's very deadly for people with with celiac disease. The question becomes, is it also bad for other people? And how did we come to believe that it was bad for people, that it caused people to gain weight, that it caused all manner of chronic diseases? And and that's a very different story because it's certainly not the science that's telling us that. So, but you just mentioned that celiac disease is, is very much underdiagnosed. So if a person, you know, an individual feels as though cutting out gluten makes them feel better, then, you know, how likely is it that they might actually have celiac disease? And how does that person, I mean, it seems like, you know, a relatively innocuous change in lifestyle that could lead to feeling much better, um, you know, even without the diagnosis. So I think that's, that's part of the appeal of the diet is that people say, well, you know, look, there's all these people who are un- underdiagnosed and have this disease. Maybe I have it. Instead of going to the doctor and getting it diagnosed, I'm just going to cut out gluten and lo and behold, I feel better. That's absolutely right. And the, the doctors I've spoken with, the gastroenterologists, really are, are very upset about this. So there are, there's a lot of books out there floating around that say, you know, go ahead and try going gluten-free and see if you feel better. Or, you know, get a, get a blood test from an unaccredited blood test and see if you're allergic to gluten or sensitive to gluten. The pro- there's a lot of problems with that, though. So first of all, the specialists tell me, you know, celiac runs in families. And some people are non-symptomatic celiacs, which means that they, they might not actually react to gluten until all of a sudden they find out that they have a rare cancer that's associated with having celiac disease. So if you have celiac, disease. It's important for you to know so that your family can also know. Another problem is that while while there is an underdiagnosis of celiac disease, far more people are scared of gluten than have celiac. So if you eliminate gluten from your diet and feel better, sure, it's it's possible you're part of that 1% of Americans or, you know, half a percent of Americans, whatever it is, who are undiagnosed celiacs. Far more likely is that you feel better due to a host of other changes. So perhaps you've started cooking for yourself at home. Perhaps it's the placebo effect that going on a diet has on your own feelings of empowerment and your own feelings of being free from certain symptoms. So there's all sorts of other reasons why going gluten-free would make you feel better. And you also talk about how gluten sensitivity might not be the reason why some people feel better when they eliminate gluten from their diet. And in fact, it could be that because foods that contain gluten also contain often another special carbohydrate, um, and that gets eliminated or at least reduced in a gluten-free diet, that it's actually that carbohydrate that is causing people to feel worse. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about what that carbohydrate is and how it seems to tie into the gluten story? 
Absolutely. So, and this 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 is a great question because it it also helps us understand just how complicated it is to study nutrition. So, when I spoke with the specialists who are studying this, not the ones who are hawking diet books, but ones who are actually in the lab studying food sensitivities, um, they've told me that we're just starting to scratch the surface of what might be going on with non celiac gluten sensitivity. And one of those researchers, Peter Gibson, at Monash University, told me that in in the most recent of his studies. In fact, people seem to not be reacting to gluten, the gluten protein complex, but rather to FODMAPs, which are a special kind of carbohydrate, short chain carbohydrates. And actually, Gibson is one of the people who has pioneered a low FODMAP diet for irritable bowel syndrome. So he was understandably somewhat excited to find that, in fact, it might not be gluten that was causing sensitivity. It might be FODMAPs. And when people eliminate gluten containing foods, they also eliminate foods that happen to be high in FODMAPs. And so Gibson said, well, maybe maybe this is evidence that in fact, when people go gluten-free, what they really need to be doing is going on a low FODMAP diet. But like any good scientist, he emphasized to me that the evidence was far from conclusive and there needed to be much more investigation before we figure out exactly what's going on. Is it FODMAPs? Is it gluten? Is it the placebo effect? Is it some combination of all of these things? And you know, FODMAP containing foods include things that we consider as superfoods like broccoli and avocados and apples. So that really would change a person's diet in a, in a completely different way, um, not just eliminating gluten. So let's talk a little bit about the complexities of studying nutrition um, and why it is that sometimes we read books that are very popular that are written by people who are not nutrition specialists, um, but who are commenting on, you know, our, our, our food preferences and, and our diets. So why is it so complicated? It's so complicated because it's very difficult to run controlled studies on food and what it is that people eat. So we rely on things like symptom reporting. So people who are on a special diet have to tell doctors who are studying them how they feel and they also have to be able to recollect what it is that they've eaten. It's very difficult in the case of food, unlike a pill, for example, to design an effective placebo. So if you're trying to study the effects of steak, for example, on a population, how do you design a placebo steak? It's, it's impossible. You can't make a, a piece of steak that looks like a piece of steak and tastes like a piece of steak, but isn't actually steak. If we could, I think we would have solved a lot of other problems. But it's, it's very hard to design rigorously controlled studies about food. And on top of that, it seems to be the case that with nutrition, placebo effects are particularly pronounced. So when it comes to things that we put into our mouths and go into our bodies, food really creates a, a massive placebo effect. And so it's hard to sort out what's actually going on physiologically from the psychology of changing one's diet. And, and all nutrition scientists understand this and recognize that complexity in their study abstracts, or they should at least, but they don't always. So what is the current science about whether a person who, you know, doesn't, is just healthy, doesn't have any problems with gluten? I mean, it, it still seems like carbohydrates have been associated with a lot of negative things um, and that, you know, eating too much of them is bad for you. So is there, is there any reason why we shouldn't pull gluten from our diets? There is. There's a lot of reasons why we shouldn't pull gluten from our diets. Um, first of all, when you embark on a sort of self-diagnosed elimination diet, you run some small risks to yourself. 
the first of those, when I spoke with many eating disorder specialists, is that elimination diets for those who are prone to eating disorders can quickly blossom into full-blown anorexia or binge eating. So if you eliminate gluten-containing foods, but you happen to really, really, really love bread, it may be the case that you end up developing a binge eating disorder. This is the forbidden fruit phenomenon, where if you forbid something to yourself, it actually becomes more attractive and you develop a pathological relationship with it. And I've, I've you know, the, the specialists I've spoken with talked a lot about people who come into their offices and say, well, I started by eliminating gluten or I started by eliminating processed foods, but then I started eliminating other kinds of carbs and then I started eliminating nightshades and then I started eliminating, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. And by the end of it, they're just eating organic kale and drinking water and, and that's not a very healthy place to be. The other problem with eliminating gluten simply to see if you feel better, and this is something that the nutrition scientists don't talk about as much is that food isn't just about optimizing your health. Food is a part of culture. Food is a way in which we share experiences with family, with friends, and eliminating gluten, if you don't need to, can create undue stress in your relationship with the people around you. And so I, I really urge people to think about, you know, how valuable is it to them to be able to go to a family gathering at Thanksgiving or a family gathering at Hanukkah or Christmas and not be stressed about whether there's going to be gluten-free options there and not have to pass on the family favorite food that they've eaten for a very, very long time. These kinds of rituals are, are really important. I think it's sort of a sad world in which all of what we eat is calculated to maximize health. That's That, that to me is a kind of shallow, sad world and and people ought to reflect on whether that's the kind of world they want to live in when they start tweaking their diet. And here I hear a little bit of the religious scholar uh, coming out in you. And I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a minute and ask you if you know of any studies that indicate that worrying about your food actually does have a measurable effect on your stress level. So the answer is I do know of those studies, but just as so there's uh, there's a the guy who coined the term the omnivore's dilemma, Paul Rosen, has looked at food attitudes in France, Japan, and the U.S. and he's found that in in France people tend to not stress about food; they don't associate food with guilt, and they tend to have a better relationship with food, and they also don't overeat. Rosen takes that to mean that not stressing about your food is healthier. I'm skeptical of studies that support my own point of view, just as I'm skeptical of studies that uh, go against my point of view. And so I would say that a lot more work needs to be done in order to establish conclusively that worrying about your food is is bad for you. That said, I think it's it's very clear that worrying about your food and embarking on an elimination diet does stress your relationship with people around you. And you find that very often people end up grouping together in communities of like-minded dieters. So you get the paleo community, which also hooks up with the CrossFit community, in part because food is such an important shared experience that it becomes hard to share your life and share moments like meals with people who don't embrace the same diet. So while there isn't really good evidence that worrying about your food makes you sicker, I think there's there's pretty solid evidence that worrying about your food makes you less likely to associate with people who aren't like-minded. So just getting back to the sort of complexity of nutrition and nutrition science, you know, in your book, you talk a lot about claims made in two books in particular, Wheat Belly and Grain Brain. And 
I wanted to delve into that a little bit more deeply because because I think a lot of our listeners have probably read those books and they're very compelling. There seems to be a lot of evidence that the authors use to back up their claims. So can we just delve a little bit into why you found those particular books to be, you know, less than convincing? Absolutely. So what these authors do, it's, it's, a, ten, it's a technique that, that I use to create a fake diet at the end of my book. There's the literature of science is is vast. There's just enormous numbers of studies on everything, and there's an epidemiologist out of Stanford, John Ioannidis, who has done studies on whether or not foods are associated with cancer, and he's found that every food is associated in some study with either causing or curing cancer. And so, if you want to go into the scientific literature and find a ton of studies that support your particular diet. You can do that. The problem is that in order to actually establish truths like, for example, wheat is causing us to become obese or grains are the cause of Alzheimer's, it actually takes a lot more than just cherry picking a couple of studies. And so what these what these authors do, they're not nutritionists themselves. They go into the scientific literature. It's it's sort of like a Rorschach test and they find all of the things that agree with their point of view and then they they fearmonger about whatever it is that they've decided to prove is killing us and then offer us a dietary solution and i think that's i think that's really dangerous because it makes people misunderstand the way science works and so to take an example from from wheat belly a lot everyone has read this book everyone's really excited about it, it feels very empowering because they feel like they have knowledge that no one else knows it's got this sort of conspiracy narrative the us government has destroyed us with its recommendation to eat carbohydrates it's got the Franken Frankenfood narrative, oh, this modern wheat is terrible. It's not like the wheat in the past, right? So it's got the paradise past narrative. So these diet gurus use all of those rhetorical techniques that the Taoist monks use. Unfortunately, they're just not based on sound science. So William Davis talks about how modern strains of wheat have more gluten. Well, that was an interesting claim. People went in, there was a recent study done that that showed that in fact that wasn't true. Modern strains of wheat don't have more gluten in them. And unfortunately, once people have read something like Wheat Belly or Grain Brain, they are very reluctant to question the facts that they've been given because those facts are very empowering and they're a part of a narrative in which the reader and the author know more than everyone else. And and so I think those books are really dangerous. Not only are they unscientific, but they create a population that has a kind of us-them mentality rather than a skeptical attitude towards scientific studies in general. And the problem is, is that they tap into something that is very true about our memories, which is that we will remember things that are in line with our hypothesis or our beliefs, rather than things that go against them. Um, so the the study that showed that, you know, in fact, modern wheat does not have, you know, more gluten or what have you in it than historical wheat, that's not going to make the headlines and people aren't going to remember that. That's absolutely right. In fact, there's some evidence that shows, I think this, there was a, I'm trying to remember who wrote it, but there was a, there was a journalist who did a great thing on this where once you've got a narrative in place, when you hear facts that contradict it, it actually makes you believe it more. So I'm sure there's listeners right now that are thinking, there's no way, you know, this guy's in the pocket of Monsanto, right? Whenever, whenever you bring up facts that contradict that initial narrative, people refuse to believe them. And so I, I'm kind of at a loss at how to change people's minds Certainly not by throwing new studies at them, because that that doesn't seem to work very well. 
Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm preparing myself for a barrage of emails and letters about how you know how wrong we are, um, and and that's fine. I, I encourage our listeners to write to us um, and and give us their their thoughts. But and I ha- and when I got to your unpacked diet um, trademarked. Uh, I have to say that I almost decided not to interview you because it was so compelling. So the unpack diet, unpack your pounds, unpack your potential, unpack your food. And you you kind of have this appendix where you you lay out all the aspects of your diet. You have footnotes, you have charts and graphs and all these compelling um, rhetorical features. And it, it was so compelling that I really thought you were serious. And then I kept reading. <laughs> And then there's the unpacked diet unpacked, um, in which you actually take the time to note out all the things that you did to make that diet compelling. And so I, you know, we can't go over every detail in a 30 minute interview, but I want to encourage our listeners that if you're curious to, or if you've even ever considered buying a book that describes a diet, you know, please look through this particular appendix first to make sure that you're not just getting bamboozled by good rhetoric. Um, so congrats to you, Alan. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I should tell you, I want to tell you one thing about that diet really quickly, Indre, which is that after I wrote the diet and I came up, you know, hundreds of scientific citations to prove that saran wrap and aluminum were killing me and causing me to be fat and were going to give me Alzheimer's and cancer. I actually scared myself, e- even though I knew it was fake, just writing the diet terrified me. And, and for a couple of weeks after writing it, I, I really didn't want to saran wrap my foods, you know. So it's, it's very, very powerful rhetoric and very, very powerful to have all those footnotes, even knowing full well that I'm the one who came up with it and there was nothing to it. And but but hang on a minute. I mean, you, these not these are not studies that you made up, right? I mean, these are actual real citations. Absolutely. These are these are real studies and real citations. This is what people need to realize, especially about nutrition science. Um, Ioannidis has this great line where he says, in many branches of science, it may be the case that studies are simply reflecting the prevailing bias of the day. And this is what I found when I researched the cultural history of foods like sugar, for example, again and again, I found that that people had biases that then got reinforced by the science. And this is something, um, you know, also very controversial. I don't want to get all of your readers totally riled up. This is happening right now with with breastfeeding, um, which is that once people believe that something is good or morally right, and when that activity also takes a sacrifice, um, sacrifice of time and effort, breastfeeding is a really good example, they're going to be more likely to believe the studies that say that that activity is good, less likely to believe the studies that say that activity is not as good. And and they're also going to be more likely to believe a single study without having lots and lots and lots of evidence to back it up. So there's lots of single studies to prove almost anything. There's single studies that prove many, multiple studies that prove that MSG is bad for you. Multiple studies for a long time that prove that saturated fat was bad for you, that cholesterol was bad for you, right? And, and everyone's familiar with the flip-flopping in nutrition science. Red wine is good. Red wine is bad. Red wine is good. Red wine is bad. Cholesterol is bad. Cholesterol is good. Cholesterol, we don't know, right? And the truth is, you know, nutrition scientists who aren't in the business of selling books will tell you what we actually know is is very shaky. Um, there's a couple of things that we do know. You know, don't smoke cigarettes, don't be an alcoholic. But beyond that low-hanging fruit, the reason there's so much back and forth in the headlines and so many contradictory diets is that the truth is none of this science is is very solid. And that's why, you know, I'm sure some of you readers have read Forks Over Knives, which is this vegetarian 
diet book that says that the cure for all of our chronic diseases, it, you know, is, is avoiding meat. And that was on, that was on Dr. Oz and Dr. Oz said everyone should read it, you know. And then there's, there's these other books, these paleo books that say, actually, it's the whole grains that are killing us. And you have to have lots of meat in your diet, or at least some meat in your diet, if you want to avoid chronic disease. And of course, Dr. Oz had that, you know, has, has those books on his show and he says you should read them, right? And the answer, of course, that neither, neither is right. Forks over knives is wrong and the paleo advocates are wrong and they're wrong. Because no one knows. There is no one true diet to rule them all. And and that's that's the sad truth, right? I wish I could tell people I'd discovered the ideal diet, but that would be a lie. No, I mean you're you're exactly right. And you know, I'm I'm a hardcore skeptic. I have a science background. And when there was one breastfeeding study that came out that showed that, you know, essentially that the you know, the benefits of breastfeeding kind of wash out once kids are a few years old. Um I had a, I, I, the first thing I looked for was why that study was wrong. Cause you know, I put so much effort into breastfeeding my baby because of all the other studies that showed it was so beneficial. And you know, it, it, it's amazing how even the person who approaches this work with a skeptical eye can get emotional about the results of a particular study. Um, so one thing that I think is very emotional for a lot of people is sugar. And that was one chapter in your book that I have to say, I found myself really not, you know, dis- disagreeing with you so much as, you know, throwing up my hands and thinking, well, exactly how many studies do we need then to prove one way or another and, and help us inform our decisions? Because, you know, well, let's hear what you think about sugar and whether or not it's something that we should avoid. So, again, I think there's no question that Americans consume too many sugary beverages. I think that food companies market rapaciously to children and they market foods that are chock full of sugar. And we know absolutely as certain as we can be about nutrition science that people are getting far too many extra calories in the form of sugary beverages and in the form of breakfast cereals and so on and so forth. So there's there's simply no question. And, and anyone you talk to, endocrinologists, nutrition scientists will say that all of those things are hugely problematic and all Americans should try to reduce the amount of calories they get from sugary beverages and sugary cereal. That's uncontroversial. What is controversial, according to the science, is whether or not sugar is actually toxic, right? So you see these, you see these headlines. Robert Lustig is this endocrinologist out of UCSF, and he's, he says that soda is like cigarettes and morphine and heroin and cocaine, right? I mean, there's this laundry list of crazy drugs. He thinks we should regulate sugar like other drugs of abuse. Well, there, unfortunately, the science simply isn't clear. And it's not that we've had tons of studies that show that that uh, soda is like cigarettes. In fact, the food addiction specialist, I encourage people to to look this up online. You'll have to skip the first five websites, which are going to be Joseph Mercola and Natural News and Alarmist, totally, totally unreliable websites. But once you get to, you know, solid scientific websites, you'll you'll find that food addiction specialists say, well, you know, we're not really sure Food addiction is very shaky. You, you see this um, with alcoholism even, right? So there's this sea change now with um, Alcoholics Anonymous. It's like, well, you have to – if you're an alcoholic, you have to eliminate alcohol completely. But actually m- most modern addiction specialists think that that's not necessarily the case, that this is a holdback to a kind of puritanical understanding of uh, an object or a, a, a beverage that is sinful, right? Alcohol in the same way that sugar is. And so – the science is, is clear that we're consuming too many calories in the form of sugar. What it is not clear on is that fructose is a smoking gun, that it, that it gives us fatty liver disease, that, that it's sugary beverages specifically as opposed to increased caloric intake that cause diabetes. All of these things ha- have yet to be proved. And I'm very open 
to the idea that 20 years from now, we will be able to say, gee, sugar really was just like cocaine. I'm open to that. But I suspect that 20 years from now, we're going to say that was a little bit hyperbolic. Sugar is not like cocaine. We were drinking too many sodas and it's great that we that we cut down on them. But all of that alarmism was was a little bit overblown. So I'm not saying that everyone should just, you know, consume all of the calories in the form of, of Coca-Cola and Twinkies. But I am saying that that food is something around which we've jumped the gun way too many times. And to call sugar toxic is to make parents feel incredibly guilty about their kid going and eating a slice of birthday cake because you wouldn't give your child a cigarette on their birthday. You wouldn't give them a shot of bourbon. And the rhetoric around sugar right now is that it is like cigarettes and bourbon and cocaine. And that, I think the science is pretty clear, is, is, is far from established. And yet it's true that, you know, we are getting closer and closer to understanding what sugar can do to us. So, you know, I think now instead of saying sugar causes diabetes, people say sugar causes metabolic syndrome, which can be a precursor for diabetes, um, just like, you know, eating, just consuming too many calories uh, can. And and so there, there are these things. And I think you're exactly right that, you know, in some ways, the science needs to get to a point where it can provide us with the sound bites that are truthful rather than hyperbolic. Um, and and we're, we're trying to get there. But when it comes to food, it seems as though, you know, because it's such an emotional thing, it's something that we all do, it's something that we all think about and care about, um, that that it's particularly ripe for hyperbole and rhetoric. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is with that, so, I mean, sugar is really important, right? And salt, too. Let's take both of those. It's one thing to say that excess sugar causes or conduces to metabolic syndrome because there's other things that are in there as well, right? Like genetics. So we know that Pacific Islanders are, are more prone to become diabetic than other people. We don't know exactly why, right? So yes, it's true that sugar conduces to diabetes, but do we really want people obeying the fed up documentary and going through their kitchens and throwing out their ketchup because ketchup causes sugar addiction? Do we really want our culinary culture to be one in which people see this incredibly important and delicious and wonderful ingredient as poison? We don't. We don't want that. We want people to have a healthy relationship with their food. We want them to eat sugar where it belongs, which is in desserts and in occasional dishes that call for it, and not to drink two liter bottles of Coke with lunch. And I think if we can be reasonable and and not alarmist in our rhetoric, we can accomplish what we want, which is to reduce the amount of sugary beverages that people are consuming and the amount of candy that people are eating without pathologizing sugar, because that's that's not going to be good for our food culture. It's not going to be healthy for our relationship with food in general. So I think that's right. But I also am a little bit concerned because sometimes you hear stories of people who seem to be addicted to sugar. So for example, there's some really compelling videos that have been made recently to help fight obesity, particularly in people who are low income. And they show individuals, say a mom, for example, who has lost her feet because of diabetes. And they show her daughter who understands that the relationship, you know, between drinking sugary beverages and her mom's condition, and yet she can't help but drink, you know, 12 sodas a day or something like that. So, you know, when you see those kinds of stories, it calls into question this notion that sugar is not addictive. Well, so again, I have to I have to defer to to addiction experts. And and what addiction experts say is it is very, very difficult to know what we mean by 
saying sugar is addictive. So there are there are also people who are quote unquote addicted to exercise, right? There are also people who are addicted to lots of different kinds of pleasurable substances. And the and the vocabulary right now, the the way in which people understand sugar addiction is as a compulsive behavior. So there are people who also compulsively eat chips. There are people who compulsively eat many different kinds of foods. Sugar is pleasurable. And so it makes sense that if it came to a compulsion, like hoarding objects, for example, sugar would be in sugary beverages, would be would be something that people would compulsively consume. But to call that an addiction and to say that sugar itself is addictive is to make a very complex issue seem incredibly simple and also to potentially scare people needlessly about eating small amounts of sugar. Again, if we're going to say people get addicted to sugar, well, okay, let's let's assume that a very small percentage of the population does get addicted to sugar. We have to think in terms of public policy, right? What does that mean? Are we going to tax sugar? Are we going to... Um, eliminate sugar from schools? Are we going to run ad campaigns like the campaigns we have run about cigarettes? And, you know, outside of cigarettes, our laws against drugs, whether alcohol or um, drugs of abuse, cocaine, crack, heroin, have had a disproportionate effect on the poor and minorities and have done very little to accomplish what it is they set out to do. So uh, uh, in addition to having to think about whether the science is there, we also have to think about what we would do if the science were there. And and that's also a question that I think is is the elephant in the room that that even if we proved this conclusively, we don't have a lot of good policy measures in place that that have a great track record. You're right. And I know at least here in California, there's been a beverage tax that's been, you know, that hasn't passed uh, in 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 a, in recent elections. But that is something that people are talking about. We, you know, they are talking about taxing sugar. Um, and uh, so that's, you know, that that's definitely in the conversation. I suspect that if they tax something, they're going to tax soda, but they're not going to tax truffles, right? So we're going to see immense classism almost instantly when it comes to sugar policy. And that's that's very disturbing to me. And that's something that we, we need to be thinking about. No one's saying, let's tax truffles. They're saying, let's tax soda. You're, no, you're exactly right. And, you know, truffles are already taxed. My God, the other day I bought one for like $5. <laughs> um, that, that, that speaks to my own addiction. Um, but I do want to get back to this idea that there's a lot of science out there on nutrition. There have been a ton of studies on everything. You know, even in your book, you mentioned sugar and gluten and fat and salt. And yet we still can't draw grand conclusions behind it, you know, from them. And, uh, you know, although I, you know, I think you've done a really great job in sort of showing how a lot of the rhetoric doesn't hold water when the science comes to bear on it. Um, But what can you tell our listeners about how to navigate the rhetoric so that they can begin to make decisions on, you know, how to consume the studies that are already out there? Because, of course, nobody can read all of these studies. So what should we be looking for when we're trying to understand where the science is going? Well, that, that's where I think my book can be really helpful and liberating. So, you know, I'm not a scientist. I had to rely on multiple interviews with scientists to make sure that I had gotten my science right. But what I can offer people is warning signs that someone is not providing good information. So if they have a paradise past narrative, they say, oh, back in the day, everything was wonderful and good. You know, you think to yourself, well, there wasn't chlorine in the water and people were getting cholera. So so you know that the paradise past narrative is suspicious. You know that a promise of a simple 
cure for multiple chronic illnesses has been the same promise that snake oil salesmen and charlatans and diet gurus have offered for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so if that is in there, you should be suspicious. If the rationale for the diet has more to do with a conspiracy theory about the government having manipulated us or about companies like Monsanto trying to keep the truth from us, I think it's worth being wary. Whenever a a scientific truth is hooked up to a narrative of good and evil, it's, it's an alarm bell that tends to be evidence that the person is less concerned with truth and more concerned with persuasion. And so I think if if people read the book, they may not agree with with all of the science, but what they will have at the end of the day is a pretty good primer on how to recognize warning signs in a diet or in an article about a study that mean it shouldn't be trusted. So I just want to remind our listeners that Alan Lavinovitz's book is now out. It's called The Gluten Lie and Other Myths About What You Eat. And the cover features a piece of toast with a skeleton, with a with a skull cut out of it um, that I have to say my 60-month-old son found really compelling. <laughs> so um, <laughs> thank you for being on Inquiring Minds, Alan Lavinovitz. Thank you so much for having me. The comments about sugar are really what resonate with me. Full disclosure to our listeners, I work at the University of California in San Francisco, uh, which was a university and uh, that was referenced in regards to one of the scientists that work on some of the sugar studies. Uh, I'm, I can't imagine sugar being in the same conversation as cocaine. Well, I know, but I'll, you know, but he quotes, and and I think sometimes scientists do want to make their point and we become a little bit hyperbolic. I've definitely caught myself doing it. You get excited about your findings. You want to share that enthusiasm with someone else. And so, you know, you use an analogy that maybe is hyperbolic. So what's fascinating about this is there's stuff like cocaine and other drugs that you can abuse that have very clear short-term and physical ramifications. So something like sugar, which is, you know, contributor to obesity and other sort of uh, um, long-term health effects, that's less obvious to see. So I actually understand the argument, and I I know some of the studies are referencing, it's a bit much to call it sort of a a toxin and a poison, but its long-term effect to overall the society, sugar actually might be a bigger cost to us because of the the billions of dollars of healthcare costs, the, the cost to people's quality of life, especially near end of life. Uh, related to diabetes and other onsite uh, situations. So is it so hyperbolic when the cost of that actually could be much higher than some of the drugs we're talking about? You know, I think that's a really important question. And I have to say, as I think I mentioned in the interview, that, you know, his section on sugar was probably the one that I took issue with the most, that I was kind of the most skeptical of. And, you know, although he... He does point out some important things, though, about this fact that you should not be afraid to eat a piece of cheesecake. It's not going to kill you. Just like, you know, although snorting a bunch of cocaine, you know, is far more dangerous than eating a piece of cheesecake. I will put you, that out there right now. You heard it here first. Cheesecake <laughs> greater than cocaine. Okay. Um, but, you know, the, 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 I think what, what people forget, too, and, and it's something that I wish I had asked Alan about, is this notion that you can develop tolerance to sugar, I think, in ways that that are similar to the way that you can develop tolerance to other drugs. And what I mean by tolerance is that, you know, you, your body kind of gets used to it. It anticipates it, especially if you eat sugar at the same time of day. Um, 
and your body tends to prepare, you know, it always wants to reach an equilibrium. So it goes into the opposite direction. So, you know, maybe your blood sugar drops just before your, your expected, you know, 3pm donut or what have you, um, as a result of you getting into the habit of always eating sugar at that time. So we hang on a minute. So I know, I know, I, know. I see you, I see you turn on that. But I think I think the problem then is that what you're doing is you're getting into this metabolic syndrome. And although I think that that's really at the core of the, of the issue, not necessarily sugar itself, but how it affects your metabolism, it's much easier for people to understand, okay, I need to reduce my sugar intake, then okay, I don't want to mess with my metabolism. It's a more complicated thing to, you know, tell people maybe who aren't that interested in science. It's easier just to say, look, don't eat sugar instead of look, you need to worry about your metabolism. So reasonable me. I'm going to I'm going to be reasonable me for a second. Actually, thinks back to your conversation with Tracy Mann a few weeks ago, where she really talked about we're not all made equal, especially when it comes to losing weight and changing diets and changing behaviors. I think that probably is going to apply here to how we approach sugar. And it's the abuse of sugar. It's the fact that it was hidden away. Uh, in so many different food types, and that we're not associating those foods with having sugar. So our intake of this this item that we have evolution rewards for for eating, uh, that's not obvious to us. So I can understand from that perspective how this is really about overconsumption uh, and abuse of of a uh, of a rewarded item for us, as opposed to it actually being like a drug. Yeah, I mean, I, I see, I think I, I take Alan's point, though, is that the added sugar in ketchup is not what's going to make the difference. It's the, you know, can of soda you're having yeah. with, you know, your your burger that's going to make a difference. Um, but I also want to say that to that end, because we are different, there are genetic differences in people who, for example, are more prone to addiction, right? So for them, it's more important to, evo- to avoid addictive substances um, like, you know, cocaine or alcohol, what have you, um, whereas... You know, I don't know what this science says yet about whether there are people who are more prone to find it difficult to resist the temptation of sugar than others, or is it just that you know their bodies respond to it differently? I, I don't know. I think I think, and I think Tracy will agree that the science is we just don't know yet. I think the artificial sweeteners is where some of the the findings in this are going to be really interesting. And this is not science. This is my own sort of personal thing. I've been a diet coke uh, advocate addict, somewhere in between those two two words, uh, for years. And I find the artificial sweetener, I go through withdrawal, and it goes beyond the caffeine withdrawal. When I cut mm. down, there are definitely some big impacts when you become um, a heavy user of, of some of these things that I think will have long-term health uh, ramifications. Uh, and I'm really interested to see some of those studies come up. And, and so... Backing up a little bit, I think what's really important here is that the science around this pushes forward um, rapidly because we are in, as Kirsten Bibbins Domingo mentioned, you know, last month when she was on the show, that we are in a health crisis that this is a contributing factor to. Yeah, oh, I totally agree. And I think that it's good that we have people like Alan to turn around and say, hang on a minute, the science is not finished. <laughs> you know, these answers are not out there. And so let's not behave as if they are. Let's do more research. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. 
This episode is sponsored by Privlo. Can't get a mortgage because you're self-employed, make an uneven income, or have an old credit blemish? Well, there's a new lender in town, and they built a business to help you. Privlo knows that your finances are as unique as your fingerprints, and unlike regular lenders, they take a holistic view of your entire financial picture to see if you qualify for a mortgage. Apply online at privlo.com podcast and fill out a simple online form. You'll have a decision in hours. That's privlo.com podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by gluten lover Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.